So uh, like, like many of you, I am very eager for warmer weather. March and 20 degree weather, in my mind, does not go together. It's frustrating. And I've been looking at, at uh, the weather forecast with great anticipation for those warmer days. Now, part of that anticipation is when it gets warmer, we, we like to, to go on a vacation. And last year, we had, the, we had the gift to be able to go on a vacation. We went to uh, Topsail, which many of you are familiar with. And if you're familiar with Topsail, you know it's actually pronounced Topsail. So if you've been there and I pronounced it wrong, I, please forgive me. But at the same time, one of the fun things that we do is, is we just try to go to a beach. Many of you like beaches. We like beaches. If I proposed a vacation that was not to a beach, my wife would not be happy with me. And so we like to go to beaches. And with little kids, one of the things that they love to do, Finley especially right now, our five-year-old, she loves building things. You're at a beach, she loves to build sandcastles. And one of her favorite phrases, it's utilized on vacation, it's utilized in our home nearly every day, is as she's building something, she will pull me over and she'll say, Dad, take a picture. Dad, take a picture. I can't tell you how many pictures of the things that she's built I have on my phone. But she recognizes, even as a five-year-old, how perishable some of these things are. Especially sandcastles, they're just going to get washed away within just a few minutes. That includes some of the many things that she builds at our house. They don't last. And as we look at the text today, we see Paul exhorting a people, exhorting the Corinthian church to continue to labor on because they have an imperishable victory. Everything that we do in this life, at some point, is going to perish. Paul says, don't lose hope, because there is a reason to continue to labor on. As we look at this text, what we're going to see him, the argument that he's making, is that because we have an imperishable victory, our labor is not in vain. Because an imperishable victory has been secured, our labor is not in vain. It's not like sandcastles that get washed away. And so Paul, if you've been following us, he's writing to the first Corinthians. And we've just been going passage by passage, trying to understand what it is that Paul is getting at as he writes to this people. And if you're new with us, then let me just give you some background when it comes to this book of 1 Corinthians. This is actually Paul's second letter to this people. He wrote a letter earlier on, and then they responded, and now he's responding to that response. He also heard a report from Chloe's people, and so this letter addresses the things that he heard in the report from Chloe's people and the Corinthians' response to his earlier letter. Now, what we find is that in this letter, there are a ton of issues with the Corinthian church. It's a young church. It's a church that Paul cares about, and he recognizes from the report that he received and from the questions that they sent back to him that there are a lot of issues. And so Paul writes to this church trying to address some of those. And, and if you look through the book, you'll find there are no less than 10 major issues. Depending on how you divide it, there could be even more. Now, with that, Corinth was a very pluralistic society. There were lots of different religious views. And so when the Corinthians, who become, this group of Corinthians, become Christians, a church is birthed, and there's this unique belief about the resurrection. And all these other pluralistic religions, all these other religions that are in Corinth, begin to question the idea of the resurrection. And so some of the Corinthians are starting to have questions about it as well. And so as we look at chapter 15, 
That whole chapter, all 58 verses, are Paul highlighting various aspects of the resurrection. He doesn't just spend a few verses on it. He, he attacks it from, very different, or from various different angles to try to make sure that they have a firm understanding of the resurrection because everything, when it comes to the Christian religion, relies on the resurrection. And so, in the first few verses, he talks about the resurrection of Christ. That's the foundation. If Christ was resurrected, then we can have hope for these other things as well. And then he talks about the resurrection of the dead. So not only will, was Christ resurrected, but those who are dead will be resurrected. And then he talks about what those resurrected bodies will be like. He talks about how there are no mortals. We're all immortal. We're being resurrected either to eternal splendor, or as C.S. Lewis put it, into an image that is so horrific that we may have only encountered it, if at all, in a nightmare. Those are the two realities that we are headed toward. And now, in these final nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about our resurrection victory. So he started with Christ in this chapter, then he went to the dead, how the rest of the dead are going to be resurrected. Then he talked about the resurrection body, what that body's going to be like, depending on where your trust is, Christ or something else. And then he now talks about those two categories, whether your resurrection hope is in Christ or in something else. He now breaks down that category of Christ. So he talks about if you are in Christ, you have victory, and therefore your labor is not in vain. So turn with wood to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And look for the big number 15. If you're using one of the blue provided Bibles on the floor there, that's going to be on page 962. Page 962. And then look for the little number 50. We're going to start in verse 50. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great hope that we have in the resurrection. We pray that as we consider the victory that comes through Christ's resurrection, that we'd be encouraged. We pray that if there are those here who have not embraced Christ that they would today. And God, we pray that your word, as we look at it, would shape us into his image. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
So if you turn your bulletin, you'll find uh, the sermon outline. There are some blanks there. I'm going to go ahead and give them all to you. So the first point that we see is the need for the imperishable. The need for the imperishable. The second is the result of the imperishable. And then we see the fruit of the imperishable. So the need, the result, and the fruit of the imperishable. So in verse 50, Paul starts off by presenting a problem. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he is writing to a church that is made up of flesh and blood. He says, it cannot inherit the kingdom. And our current perishable state is unfit for the imperishable kingdom that is to come through Christ. Wayne Grudem puts it this way. He says, imperishable, meaning that, is that which is not subject to decay, unable to be worn out with the passage of time. So imperishable is that which doesn't decay, that which doesn't wear out. Everything around us decays. Everything, be it our vehicles or our computers or our clothing, whether it be tools, books, or TVs, or houses, or ourselves, we, everything around us decays, and we ourselves are perishable and mortal. We age, we grow old, we get sick, our bodies break down, and eventually, unless the Lord returns, we die. And Paul said in verse 42, what is sown, so what dies, is perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. And so Paul makes the point, verse 42, that those who are raised will be resurrected to an imperishable body. But now the Corinthians have a question. He said, what about those who are alive when Christ returns? So yeah, we believe you, Paul, that, that everyone who dies, everything that is sown is perishable, but it will be raised imperishable. What if Christ returns and we haven't been sown? We haven't been buried. Are we going to be stuck in our mortal bodies and our perishable bodies for, for all eternity? What, what is it? And so Paul answers that question. And that question, the answer to that question was previously a mystery. He says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And he answers it. He says, we shall not all sleep. So yes, some Christians will be alive when Christ returns. But all, Paul says, all shall be changed. So whether those who are alive, Christians who are alive, or those who have since died, those who are asleep, all will be changed. And he says sleep, uh, that, that sleep there just, just means to die, but he uses that terminology, there, there's a reason. Because he anticipates everyone who has died to be woken up. There will be a day when all the living, or excuse me, all the dead, whether those who are in Christ or those who are not in Christ, will be raised. And so Paul uses the terminology of sleeping because the terminology sleeping implies that he expects them to wake up. So Christians and non-Christians will both be changed. However, what Paul is getting at here, because in the previous passages, the one that we looked at last week, is that both Christians and non-Christians are going to be raised. But now, Paul is focusing in on the category of Christian. So what follows in this text has to do with Christians. Remember, he's talking to brothers. He says, uh, my beloved brothers there in verse 50. And so John Calvin pointing this out, he says, although the resurrection of the wicked will also involve change, yet as there is no mention of them made here, we must consider everything that is said 
as referring exclusively to the elect. So when Paul is talking about the, this resurrection and the victory that we have in verses 50 to 58, he's referring to those who are in Christ. We can speculate and, and talk about uh, what it looks like for those who are non-believers. However, that's not what this passage is getting at. So whether alive or dead, all Christians will receive changed bodies. And Paul elaborates a little bit more on this in 1 Thessalonians, when he's writing to the Thessalonian church. In chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 15, he says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So all will be changed, whether you're whether dead or alive. All will be changed. Here's the cool thing to think about. Paul points out in verse 52 that this change will happen in a moment. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So essentially, at, a, at the blink of an eye, this radical change to go from perishable to imperishable, to go from mortal to immortal, will happen like that. Just marvel for a second at the effects that sin have on our bodies, on our lives. God will eradicate all of that in a second. We have a powerful king. Ever since the fall, every person has been slowly and steadily marching toward death. It's kind of grim to think about. But Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And we are in Adam who sinned. And we all have sin. So all of us are steadily marching toward death. Why? Because we're marked by sin. And so therefore, we are perishable. And the problem is that the perishable does not inherit an imperishable kingdom. So we need to be made imperishable. That's what Paul is getting at. And here's the good news, that Christ, the Son of God, who was in glory with the Father from eternity past, came to take on a perishable body and live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that when he is raised imperishable, we too can be raised imperishable if we are in him. His resurrected body proves that he lived the life that is required to inherit the imperishable. The fact that he was resurrected imperishable shows that his life earned that imperishable reward. And he's the only one to earn it. Death couldn't hold him. He had no sin. Therefore, death had no claim on him. We see that in the resurrection. If you're not a Christian today, I want to submit to you that death has a claim on all of us, yourself included. If you have sinned, then death has a claim on you. And the scriptures say that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when was the last time that you considered your mortality. The fact that you are perishable. 
The fact that you will not last forever in this body. That everything you're working for will pass away. Your career, your house, your family, your health, your retirement, your friends, your neighborhood, nations, hobbies, social media following, your grades, all of it is going to pass away. And there will be a day when nobody thinks about what you accomplished here on this earth. All of that is going away. And so is your highest devotion, if you're not a Christian, is your highest devotion to that which is perishing? What's it do? Consider turning to the imperishable one so that you too can be made imperishable and inherit the imperishable kingdom. And if you are a Christian in the room today, be encouraged that by being united to Christ, you will be made imperishable like him. He makes you fit for the kingdom. What a great assurance. You don't need to look at yourself. When you fall short, as we all do, as was read earlier, that if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar. We have sin. We fall short. But praise God that our imperishable inheritance is not dependent on us. We have a secure victory in Christ, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. And so if you're struggling with assurance this morning, don't look at yourself. Look at Christ. Be encouraged that Christ has secured it for you. So we have a need for the imperishable. And now let's look at the result of the imperishable. So in verse 54, Paul says that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so for now, death is a reality. When this change takes place, when we, when we go from perishable to imperishable, it's then that death is swallowed up in victory. It's not right now. And so we still experience the pain of losing loved ones. Some of you just within the last year have lost dear loved ones. We experience that. Death is not yet swallowed up in victory. However, there's coming a day, and it was foretold by the prophet Isaiah, that Christ will defeat death for all of those who are in him. And we will experience that victory with him. He's the first fruits, but our victory is coming as well if we entrust ourselves to him. It's long been God's plan to address death. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. He's quoting Isaiah there, Isaiah 25, 8, where we, where we read, God will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. So he has accomplished that work. And now for all those who are in him will experience the consummation of that victory when he returns. Then he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So, so what does that mean, the sting of death? Well, notice here in this passage, in verse 56, look at that. He, Paul connects three things. He connects death, sin, and the law. And so by breaking God's law, that is sin. And wherever there's sin, that leads to death. And so a natural question that would arise from reading that, 
is how should we view God's law? If, if it seems like if the law wasn't there, then it never would have been broken, and there wouldn't be sin, there wouldn't be death. So how should we, how should we view God's law? Well, Paul had a similar um, question when he's writing to the Romans, and he addresses it in Romans 7. If you turn back there, it's just going to be uh, just a few pages back. Romans 7, verses 7 through 8, we're going to look at. He says this. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Then drop down to verse 13 there. Did that which is good, so the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so sin was there. But the law shows us that sin is there. And then it puts the spotlight onto sin and then sin is shown to be the grotesque thing that it is. Because then sin uses the law to bring about more sin. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was. The law didn't say, you shall not covet. And so we learn three things about God's law. So one, it's not sinful. You see that in Romans 7, verse 7, which we just read. And then in verse 13, we learn that the law is good. And then also in verse 13, we see that it reveals sin like an x-ray reveals a broken bone. We don't say the x-ray machine caused the broken bone. The x-ray machine reveals what is there. Theologians throughout the history have, have talked about the three uses of God's law, three uses of, of the Ten Commandments, God's law summarized. And the first one is this, that it reveals sin and makes us aware of our need for a Savior. So the, the law is a good thing because it reveals our sin and it makes us aware of our need for a Savior. The second one is that it restrains evil. So we read that God's law is written on the hearts of all people. And so even in the most remote areas who are the most pushed away and, and secluded from a developed society like our, like our own, even they recognize that stealing is wrong. Even they recognize that murder is wrong. God's law is written on our hearts. And so it reveals to us our sin, but it also restrains evil because we recognize things that are wrong. But then also, the third use is that it's a guide for moral living. And so when we read that, that from the law came sin, it's easy to think, oh, I hate the law. But we shouldn't. God's law is a good thing. It's a gift to his people. Don't despise it. Delight in it and meditate on it as Psalm 1 tells us to do. So looking at this passage, we see that our problem is threefold. If you look at verse 56 there, we have a law problem. So the law is good, as we just talked about, but we consistently break it. We also have a sin problem, because the law revealed our sin. And God, being good and just, must punish that sin. He can't let it go unpunished. He would be an unjust God if he let the guilty go free. And then three, we have a death problem. Judgment awaits. 
Hebrews 9 says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so the fact that we've broken God's law means that we have sin, and we're all headed towards death. And we, at, at death is when we face judgment. And so we have a law problem, a sin problem, and a death problem. The sting of death is that judgment is coming. It's not just that you die. It's that judgment is coming, and you will pay for your sin. That's the sting of death. But, verse 57, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God addresses all three of those problems in his son. So when it comes to the law, Jesus never broke it. He came in a perishable body, and he never broke the law. When it comes to sin, he went to the cross and was crucified to pay for the sin of all who would repent and put their trust in him. And then when it comes to death, he took on a sinner's death. He stood in our place. He received the wrath and judgment that was reserved for sinners. And he walked out of the grave on the third day, imperishable and victorious, because death could not hold him. Jesus Christ addresses all three of our problems, the law problem, the sin problem, and the death problem. And the result is an imperishable victory over death. All who repent, who confess their sin and turn away from it, and all who entrust themselves to Christ, who believe in the gospel, who trust him for their eternity to take away their sin, they will experience this victory. And so, Christian, take great hope in knowing that Christ has secured your victory. You don't have to secure it. He's done it for you, and he gives it to you freely through faith alone. No additional work is needed. And now we eagerly await that consummation. Romans 8.23 talks about this. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That redemption of our bodies takes place at the resurrection. But in the meantime, that passage says that we wait eagerly. And so, Christian, are you marked by an eager anticipation of God's return? When it comes to the way that you work, are you marked by an eager anticipation of Christ's return? When it comes to the way that you approach your marriage, when it comes to the way that you approach raising children, when it comes to the way that you approach dating, when it comes to the way that you approach engaging in your community? Are you marked by an eager anticipation of Christ's return? If you are, then you will begin to see the fruit of the imperishable, which we see in verse 58. So in light of all this, Paul's made his his argument in those first eight verses, and now in this ninth verse, verse 58, Paul says, therefore. So now after making all these arguments, he says, here's what I want you to do. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, not hoping, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you are not in the Lord, your labor is in vain. It's going towards something that will perish. But in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So he's talking to these Corinthians. He says, be steadfast and immovable. Don't let Those who are on the outside shake your confidence in the resurrection because in the resurrection we see all these other things. Our faith 
is rooted in the resurrection. So he's pleading with the, the Corinthians, be steadfast and immovable. Don't be blown to and fro by every form of doctrine. And so Christian, do the word steadfast and immovable. Reflect the hope that you have in Christ. Are you steadfast? Are you immovable? Do you have great confidence in this inheritance that comes through our king? And if that's not the case, because here's the thing, faith is constantly a wrestle with doubt. We are constantly wrestling with it. And so if you find yourself wrestling with it, share that with another brother or sister in Christ. Talk with somebody. Meet up with them. Say, hey, I'm just going to be honest. Here's what I'm struggling with. This right here. How can this be the case? And then go through something with that brother or sister. But don't, don't just isolate yourself as you wrestle through that. Christians weren't meant to be alone on an island trying to work things out themselves. We have one another. We're called sheep. We go in flocks. Share your struggles with one another. But always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Ephesians 2.10. This is what Paul is getting at when he says that. He's talking about uh, this phrase that he wrote to the Ephesians. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God has prepared work for us to do. He doesn't say, you've not, you've not been saved, and so therefore kick up your feet and enjoy yourself. He does call us to a rest, but a rest that is in Christ Jesus, meaning that then we can, we can rest from earning our salvation, but it doesn't mean that we rest from doing good works. Hopefully that distinction is clear. We rest from earning our salvation, but we don't rest from doing good works. We continue to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. So don't overlook those opportunities that the Lord has placed around you. We just sang, Father, hear the prayer we offer. And one of the phrases there is, make thy work our ceaseless prayer. Be praying that God would make you aware of the opportunities that are around you. Pray, this is a prayer that I will oftentimes pray, that Lord, make it so obvious to me that I can't ignore it. Pray that the Lord would make those opportunities known to you. And then Christian, continue to abound in the work of the Lord. Sacrificially serve one another. Care for one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Consistently pray for the sanctification of other brothers and sisters here at the church. Consistently pray for the sanctification of other Christians outside of this church. Pray for the salvation of non-Christians. The fruit of the imperishable is twofold. One is a steadfast and immovable confidence in the resurrection of Christ and the victory that comes in that. And two, it's abounding in the work of the Lord. Continuing to walk in discipleship with one another. Continuing to evangelize the lost. Continuing to engage in the way that the Lord has provided us ways to engage. And because we have an imperishable victory, our work, that labor that we do, is not in vain. And so if you're discouraged that maybe you've been sharing the gospel with a coworker for years, maybe it's a family member, you're just not seeing any fruit, maybe you've been trying at school, whatever it is, and you feel discouraged by it, consider memorizing verse 58. What a great verse to memorize. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you feel discouraged because you're not seeing the fruit that you would like to see in your labor, consider memorizing and meditating on verse 58. Meditate on it before you start your day, then read it again before you go to bed. What I did today for the Lord was not in vain. Because an imperishable victory has been secured, our labor is not in vain. Our labor for Christ is not like sandcastles that get washed away on the beach in just a few hours. It's not perishable. It won't wash away with time. So labor on with an unwavering hope. As C.T. Studd, a British missionary, said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so recognize the work that the Lord has prepared for you. Put on the, the glasses to be able to see those opportunities. Be it at work, with your family, friends, neighborhood, and your community. Be looking for those opportunities and faithfully engage in that work. And know that that work is not in vain. Christ has secured our victory. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste, a foretaste. It's coming. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected, as we will be when he comes. If you're a Christian, find comfort knowing that we will be resurrected like Christ, victorious. If you are not a Christian, please consider calling on Christ, the imperishable and victorious one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great victory that we have in Christ. Lord, we could not accomplish it on our own. Thank you for not only accomplishing it, but then giving us faith to receive it. Lord, we pray that we would be strong in that faith, that we would be steadfast and immovable, and that we would abound in the work of the Lord. God, we pray that you would use the remaining time that we have together to increase our steadfastness and to increase our immovability in the work that we have in the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.